Thank you, Annette. It's good to be with you all again uh, this morning and to look at God's Word together. I want to talk to you this morning about the topic of your story and ask you the question, what is your story? And when I use the word story, I'm really talking about uh, the mixture, sort of, of what is and how we perceive it in the world. Uh, there's a mixture of objectivity and a mixture of subjectivity that all goes together when we view pretty much anything that out of which emerges our story and how we perceive life. And this starts when we are toddlers and we, we begin to get input from people and we begin to form how we look at ourselves and, and our world and eventually becomes what we might call a world and life view that uh, we, we have and we interpret all of life by that. So our stories, um, I want us to see that they affect how we look at our world. One person has said that we don't see things as we are or we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And I think it's always kind of that combination of both things. We, we see what happens, but then we're also uh, bringing our own subjective experience and our story to that. And the, this is exemplified in all sorts of things that we've experienced here lately. You think of the events of 2020 and how much polarization it, those events caused in our culture, in our country, in our society whether it was about racial things or political things or health issues. And we can look at certain events that happened, but then we're also dealing with how they affect us, how we perceive those events. Uh, the horror that took place in Atlanta on Tuesday this week uh, is something that uh, people begin to look at. They, they hear the news and then they begin to process it through their stories. And often those stories are, are so different. Uh, even this week on Monday night, just up the road here, I don't know how many of you were aware on, on, the, on the tunnel up on B Street, there was an accident where the night that it was raining, Monday night, it was full of homeless people down in the tunnel. And, and a 71-year-old man who was impaired drove his car into the tunnel and went up on the curb and killed three homeless people and injured about five or six others uh, just four blocks away from us here. And when we hear stories like that, we begin to think about all the issues that surround those stories and we, all the things that, the ways that we would process those things. Um, and so our stories affect how we look at the world. I want you to see also that our stories affect how we prioritize our lives and our stories also affect how we view ourselves. And that's pretty significant because every moment of every day, we're kind of booting off of our story and how, we, how we're going to look at life and how life is going to uh, be, make sense to us. So the point here that I'm trying to make just in the introduction is that there, there is no such thing as just totally brute, bare facts. We, we, we see things happen and almost immediately we're looking at them from a certain perspective that says a lot about our particular story and the grid that we have. And so the question this morning is this, what's your story? What is your story? And where does God fit into your story? Have you left room for God in your story in the way that God needs to be in your story? And we're going to answer those questions from an account in God's word in 1 Kings 19, where uh, it's the account of the, the prophet Elijah. And I'm not going to read the whole text this morning because it's 
It's rather long. It's in 1 Kings 19. You can go home and fact check me if you want in terms of if I got it right or not. But Elijah is this prophet of God who really comes on the scene in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And there, uh, and I think also chapter 17, when he comes on the scene, when we hear sirens, we put it through our story. Don't we? Uh, he comes on the scene as a man praying for different things. He, he's told to go and live with a widow at Zarephath. And there, this is a widow who doesn't have a lot of things. She has a son and very little food. And uh, Elijah challenges her, the Lord sent me, so make some food out of what's left, out of the oil and the flour that you have. And what happens is that oil and flour just continues to stay at a, at a steady rate, even though she's using it day after day after day. A little bit later, her son becomes ill, and Elijah is there when he actually dies. He's, he stops breathing, and he's dead. And Elijah takes the boy and prays over him and actually raises him from the dead. Now, just think about that for a minute, because when we think about people being raised from the dead, we think, of course, about Jesus. We might think about Lazarus, but no one had ever done that before. This is the first account in God's word where someone prayed and someone was raised from the dead. Elijah did that. And, and as the story goes on in chapter 18, what happens is he has this incredible encounter on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And you kids that are here or watching online, I'm sure you've seen this or heard this story about how there were uh, like eight or there were about 950 different prophets that were on Mount, uh, Mount Carmel, false prophets, uh, eight or 900 of them. In, and Elijah said, we're going to have a contest here. You build your altar and then call upon your gods to bring fire down upon your altar and consume it. And I will build an altar to God, Jehovah God, and I'll call on him. We'll see who wins. This is contest. It's an incredible scene. And all day long, the prophets of Baal uh, dance and parade and, and cut themselves and do all sorts of things to try to get their God to consume their sacrifice. Nothing happens. And finally, Elijah douses his sacrifice with water over and over and over and then finally prays and immediately God consumes the fire. It's the most, I, I don't know, most dramatic scene I can think of in the Old Testament in terms of proof of God's power and God's existence and God's promises to someone like Elijah. Now, what happens next is where Elijah's story begins to take shape because uh, the prophets of Baal were put to death. But the next morning, he got word that Queen Jezebel was out to get him. And she was furious. And this wasn't just a deal where uh, a lot of times this story is, is put in terms of, well, why would this great prophet of Eli prophet Elijah be afraid of this you know queen but this queen had a lot of power and she was a very wicked queen and she had the power to put Elijah to death and Elijah just went into despair so the day after he has this incredible scene on Mount Carmel he's in despair thinking that the queen is going to take his life and at that point uh, he he gets up and he he goes out and sits under what's called a broom tree, and there God uh, feeds him and tells him to get ready to take a journey. And what Elijah does then is sets off on a 40-day journey to go to Mount Horeb, where he will have 
an encounter with God. Now, why did he go uh, to Mount Horeb? I think there's a couple of reasons. First, Elijah's expectations after the event on Mount Carmel and even leading up to that was that he, as a prophet, was different than all the other prophets before him. He was a cut above all of them. He felt his ministry, what God had called him to do, was going to have a lasting impact that did not characterize the work of all of the other prophets. Um, If you put this in baseball terms, I I did a funeral yesterday for the wife of a fellow I played baseball with. So I'm thinking, I've been thinking baseball for the last couple of days, excuse me for that. But there's a good analogy here. It's like Elijah feels like he's the guy who can throw the ball 100 miles an hour and he's the closer. And he feels like, okay, we're this whole mission of God is coming to a climax. It, it did on Mount Carmel. I'm the closer. I'm the one who puts down the, the, the other team in the ninth inning. And what Elijah finds is that the game's still going. And, and it, it's befuddling to him. It causes him to go into this despair because he expected God to cooperate with his dream. And so when Jezebel threatens him, he wants to die. And, and God says, no, take this journey. And he goes to Mount Horeb. And most uh, people believe, and it's pretty well established, that Mount Horeb was another name by Elijah's time for Mount Sinai in Moses' time. So what Elijah is doing here is actually going back to where it all began for the nation of Israel, back to where God gave Moses the law back to where for those days that Moses was up on the mountain, the mountain trembled and and was shrouded in cloud. And there was this awesome display of God's power because that's Elijah's story that God appears only in powerful ways. And if I want to experience God's power in the face of all these threats, I'm going to go back uh, to where it all began on Mount Sinai. So he takes this 40-day trip. It's a 40-day trip. And the distance from where he was at Mount Carmel down to where Mount Sinai would have been uh, would have meant that he had to travel about seven and a half miles a day for 40 days on foot through the desert to get down to Mount Sinai. And he had all of that time, he had all of that time to come up with what he was going to tell God. He had all that time to develop his narrative and to develop his story before God. And when he finally gets there, God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And here's what Elijah says in verse 10 of chapter 19. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And when you look at Elijah's story, now that's, that's how he looks at life, how it's played out and where he is right now. When you look at that, there's a few things that uh, become problematic. First is that it's focused on fear and not on faith. He's afraid of what Jezebel has threatened to do to him. They're about to take my life. It's focused on fear, not faith. But secondly, it's focused on circumstances and not on God's promises. You know, when we look with hindsight on that whole uh, whole set of events, we think, how could a guy who had seen what happened on Mount Carmel be so afraid the next day? 
Wouldn't he have faith that God could bring him through whatever Queen Jezebel was going to try to do? But his faith had disappeared and it had been replaced with his fear in his life. And his story was based more on fear than faith and on circumstances than God's promise. But the last thing I see here is that it was focused on himself and not God. He says, I'm, uh, the, the, she wants to put me to death. I am the only one left. He says, I'm the only one left. He's focused on himself and not upon God. And he sees himself as more crucial to God's plan than what he really is. And God needs to show him that. So what God does is he responds to Elijah in this very, very interesting way. It's kind of a surprising way. Uh, Elijah's there in a cave. And some people think that this might even be the the, the cleft of the rock scene in Exodus where God's uh, put Moses and then passed in front of Moses and Moses saw the backside of his glory. It could have been the same place, but Elijah's in a cave and God is going to appear to Elijah. And you almost, can, I, when I envision this scene, I see Elijah maybe four or five steps from the mouth of the cave. And all of a the sudden there's um, this tremendous, wind that takes place. And the wind is tearing the rocks off the side of the mountain. And as Elijah would hear the wind and experience the results of that, you could almost see him kind of backing away from the mouth of the cave out of fear. But it says God wasn't in the wind. And then there was this earthquake where the mountain shook. And you can almost see Elijah going further back in the, in the cave, trying to look for safety but it says God wasn't in the earthquake. And then finally, there was a fire. And by this point, I think Elijah would have been back against the back wall of the cave trying to stay safe, but God wasn't in the fire. All those great demonstrations of of power, God wasn't in any of them. But it said, finally, what God did is he spoke to Elijah with a gentle whisper, with a gentle whisper. And his point, I believe, that God was trying to make is that I want to give you a new perspective, Elijah. This always isn't about just great demonstrations of power. Sometimes um, what, what you'll experience is not the spectacular, but you'll experience um, something very simple. And that will be me. That will be my voice speaking to you. And after giving Elijah that very important lesson that it's not all about demonstrations of power, but it's about relationship with God and and trust in him, Elijah is asked again by the Lord, what are you doing here, Elijah? And in verse 14, Elijah responds and he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. I want you to notice here the difference between what Moses or what Elijah says in verse 10 when God asks him that question, and what he says in verse 14 when God asks him the same question. And I have a slide here where I think I put verse 10 and verse 14 up side by side. And do you notice what the difference is 
in between verse 10 and verse 14 as Elijah answers this question. Here's the difference. It's subtle. Verse 10 is in white and verse 14 is in yellow. <laughs> That's the only difference. And this, this struck me. I mean, I'd read this story for years, but a couple of years ago, it struck me anew. The power that our stories have over our lives. You know, sometimes we, we have a story, we have a way that we look at life, the way we process God's work in our lives. And we, we think, well, that story isn't what I want it to be, but if God were just to show up and make it all clear to me, then I would get off my dime. I'd, I'd change my story. I'd be able to, to get it into a different and better place. But friends, look what happens here. Elijah gives the story in verse 10. God appears to him. And then he asks him a follow-up question, the same question, and Elijah gives the same answer. The story is so embedded in him, it's so much a part of him, it has such a power over him that not even an encounter with the living God could change that story for Elijah. Well, God uh, does this thing at this point where that he often does. It kind of reminds me of when he was calling Moses back in Exodus 3 and 4, and Moses was offering all kinds of excuses and finally said, God said, shut up, just go do the job. This is kind of what he does here with Elijah. After, after uh, Elijah gives us the same story again in verse 14, the Lord said to him in verse 15, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint King Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshu, king of, over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphath, from Abel Maholah to succeed you as a prophet. And then he says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You see what God is saying there, if you want to put it in the vernacular, um, I think what God is saying is, first of all, Elijah, chill out here. Chill out. This isn't about you. And I, what I want you to do now is to go back. So Elijah feels like he's coming to, he's coming to Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai to wrap everything up and, and just admit that it's all been a great try, but ultimately a failure. And God says, go back. And the second thing he says is, Elijah, do your job. You know, the job of a prophet was to anoint kings and, and to bring the word of the Lord to the people. And then when he was all through, he was to pass the baton by anointing another prophet. And so what God tells Elijah to do in, at the end of this story is to go anoint two kings and find Elisha and anoint him as the prophet. Fulfill your calling. But then he says finally to him, my plan is bigger than your dreams, Elijah. My plan is bigger than your dreams. You thought you were the one. You thought you were the one that was gonna close the game. You thought you were the one that was gonna shut it down and, and uh, you would be the closer in this story, but you're not the closer. He says to Elijah, in effect, Elijah, we're, I know you think it's the bottom of the ninth, but we're still in the third inning and you're not a closer. You're like middle relief. You're good, but you're not great. And you're going to pass the baton to Elisha, and he's going to do 
I mean, the Bible says Elisha's deeds were twice as what good, twice as much as what Elijah did. And of course, Elisha wasn't the end of the game either, was he? It went on and on because there was a greater plan that God had in store that was bigger than any dream that Elisha had for himself. As I look at this story, there's really only one other story in God's word, one other example of how our stories and how we perceive life can drown out God's story and what God is trying to do. And I find that story in Luke chapter 24, and I'm just going to read it to you. It won't be up on the screen, but so just listen to this, because this is the story of the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus after Jesus had been raised from the dead. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus kind of came up alongside of them incognito. They didn't realize it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, "What? why are you so downcast? Because they were they were just like moping along the road. They were totally depressed. And, and Jesus says, what's wrong? What's going on here? And here's how they respond. He says, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he says, what things? You know, Jesus is play, playing them along here. He says, what things are you talking about? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. (laughs) And you know why they were foolish? They had the story, right? When you read that story, when you read what they're saying, isn't that the gospel, friends? That Jesus was given over to be crucified that he would redeem Israel, that he said, after three days, I will rise again. And and the women are telling us he's not there and they didn't see him. And you would think that the culmination of all that, I mean, when we read that and understand what it's talking about, that's the essence of our hope, isn't it? That God is, that's the bottom of the ninth. That's the grand slam in the bottom of the ninth, you know? Jesus gets crucified in the top and in the bottom, he's raised again. And this story ends with this incredible resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you would think that the disciples would be just ecstatic over this, but they're depressed. They're downcast. And Jesus says, how foolish you are. And here's what had happened. Their stories had trumped God's action. Just like Elijah's story had trumped God's work in his life. They saw things only through their grid. And in their grid the resurrection didn't make sense. And so to them, it was this tragedy that the body couldn't be found anymore. And yet that's the greatest story in all of, all of God's word. Friends, if our stories, if your story doesn't leave room for God, one of the casualties will be the gospel in your life. Because the gospel will always seem too good to be true. 
Have you left room in your life for the gospel to be true? Or is your story so um, filled and clouded with something that drags you down that you have no hope in what God has done for you? Brian Stevenson, who was the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the author of Just Mercy, the book that turned into a movie, um, dealt a lot with and deals a lot with prisoners um, who have uh, been unjustly accused and trying to get justice for them. But at one point in his book, he says this quote. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we have ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we have ever done. Now, he says that in the context of dealing with prisoners who many of whom have committed or been accused of at least heinous crimes. Maybe it's a murder, maybe it's a rape, maybe it's a, a burglary uh, where there was armed robbery, whatever it might be. And he's saying to us, each of us, each one of us is more than just the worst thing we've ever done. And if that's the case, and if that's true for people that, are in prison for deeds that they've done. How much more for us, friends? How many of you have a story that's dominated by the worst thing you've ever done? And you're not leaving room for God to speak into that. And like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the gospel just seems to be too good to be true. It can't be true. I've got all the facts, but if it's true, that's the greatest story that's ever been told. And that's just too much for me to believe in light of what I know I've done. Friends, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. Jerry Bridges, another author, has put it this way. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Friends, this morning, make sure that the ultimate story of your life is not based on fear or circumstances. Make sure that you've left room in your story for God's promises and for God's grace. And you've left room for the gospel for what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have included us in the greatest story ever told. That when we think about what your son has done for us, it is truly amazing. It shakes us to our core because it just doesn't make sense. And we want to default back into cleaning ourselves up, presenting to you a righteousness that's of our, our own, when you say that's not going to work. All that will work is what my son has done for you. Lord, help us to embrace that this morning, uh, to make that the central part of each one of our stories, that we're a child of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.